0: I'll be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first." And when they, those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also each received one denarius. And when they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, and have borne, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first and the first last. And now pray. God, we're grateful again Um, That your ways are not our ways. And Lord, this life is so much about learning you and your ways and and coming into an agreement, God, with you. That we would be, our lives would be consistent and true to your own. We ask, God, that you would use your word, Lord, to, to continue that process. That we would be brought into greater conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, isn't it something that on Potluck Sunday I would be talking about the first shall be last and the last shall be first? (laughs) Only the Lord could arrange that. We'll see how many of you remember after the service is over. (laughs) The last thing that that was talked about in chapter 19 of Matthew was this same principle that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That was in verse 30 of chapter 19. And immediately before that, Peter asked, well, we've given up everything, Lord, to follow you. What will our reward be? Will there be a reward? And Jesus says, yep, you're going to have a great reward. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first shall be last and the last first. And then he went into this extended parable about the landowner who went out early in the morning when the first hour that people would typically start working about six in the morning and agreed with people to come and work. He didn't have enough workers, so he kept going back throughout the day. And then the last group of men that came out and worked only worked for an hour. Now here's the thing, and it's easy to overlook. The first men wanted a contract at the beginning of the day. They wanted to make sure how much they were going to be paid before they set foot in that field. Look what it says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers, so there's a dialogue going on here. There's some negotiation going on. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, that was standard fare. It wasn't excessive. It wasn't wasn't cheap. It was what was normally paid for a day's labor. And so, but it would seem that these men wanted to make sure before they went out in the field how much they were going to be paid. Now after that the landowner just went out and he gathered up men and he said, come work. And there was no discussion. There was no no debate. There was no wrangling over what the pay would be. He just said, I'll pay you. Whatever you're worth, I'll pay you. And they went. Now, I appreciated Warren Wearsby's comments here. And he said, the lesson for the Christ disciples is obvious. Well, it wasn't so obvious to me. That's why I appreciated what he had to say. And he said, this is the obvious lesson from this passage. We should not serve Christ because we want to receive an expected reward. See, that's what the disciples were saying in the end of chapter 19. Well, we've left everything. What are we going to get? We should not serve Christ because of an expected reward. There is a lot in the New Testament about rewards. But that is not our motivation for serving Him. And we should not insist on knowing what we will get. Well, it's kind of helpful to know. I remember a brother of mine... When he was just a kid, he went to bed at night. and None of us knew this, but he was saying, God, I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. Are there going to be horses in heaven? Would you show me what heaven is going to be like? He woke up having a nightmare. And my parents went in the room to settle him down, and, they, and he said, what are you scared about? And he says, I went to bed asking God what heaven would be like. And he showed me hell wow. And so he gave a very vivid description of hell. And I think if the Lord was actually doing that, it would seem that the Lord was trying to say, it's not your business. There's a lot that you don't need to know. So Wiersbe goes on, he says, we should not serve him because we want to receive an expected reward. We should not insist on knowing what we will get. God is infinitely generous and gracious and will always give us better than we deserve. And that's enough to know. When Patsy and I um, were engaged, so we're well along in our relationship, and so we hadn't gotten married yet, but it's engagement, and we were not far from being married, and I asked her, how much money do you have? I figured I, I should know. And she said, I'm not telling you. It's none of your business. <laughs> oh, wow. And I thought, well, I'm not marrying her for her money, but it would be nice to know. And she says, it's my money. And I said, well, sweetheart, you're right, and I don't need to know. But once we get married, it's not your money, and it's not my money. It's our money, and we were in agreement about that. People today, um, they want to know everything before they take a job. When I was in seminary, I remember an older professor s- saying to us, it was all men in the room, the pastoral uh, ministries class, and he said, men, when I was graduating from seminary, no one would ask the question, how much are you going to pay us? No pastor took a job and wanted to know how much they were being paid. They wanted to make sure that's where God wanted them. That's all that mattered. And he said, today, it is often the first question that people ask. What is the compensation going to be? What is the pay package? The lesson here is that we serve a good God. We've already been given eternal life, and we will never deserve it. Anything else is just bonus. But we can know this about our God. He is going to do for us exceedingly beyond anything we could ask or think. That's what the Scripture says. Yes, there will be reward. Yes, some people will be rewarded more than others. But I tell you, I have a hard time getting motivated, personally, toward reward. As much as Scripture says that there's going to be reward, I I believe that what God wants to motivate me most is not reward, but his love for me. He is a good God, and I can trust him with this. Who would you rather have work for you? Somebody who is working because of the pay? Or somebody is working because of the relationship. There are four parts to this chapter. And I think all four parts deal with this principle that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The first part is this parable. And then Jesus is going to speak about his death and resurrection. And then we're going to have this story where the mother of James and John comes and says, I want you to put my boys at your left and right hand in your kingdom. (laughs) Great. Great. And, um, and then the last is a story of a man who's healed, two men that are healed of their blindness. Jesus' kingdom is obviously not as our kingdom would be. His ways are not the ways of the world. The first shall be last? The last first? If you haven't gotten it yet, I hope you're seeing that the presentation that Matthew is making of Jesus our King is upside down from the world. Remember the first thing he said in Matthew chapter 5 is blessed are what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Then the next chapter, chapter 6, he says those people that are giving money in order to be seen, those people that are praying in the middle of the street in order to be seen, he says, I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. His kingdom is not about self-promotion. It is not about advancing ourselves, promoting ourselves, but it's about simply serving Him because He loves us. Paul spoke of the same. He got it. And he spoke about that he as an apostle and all the other apostles had become, as it were, the last of all, the least of all. His words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 are, are just stark in how he describes himself and the other apostles. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us ye might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And what did you receive that you do, not, that, that you do boast in it as though you had not received it? Then he says sarcastically, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that you might, we might also reign with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. These are God's most prominent servants. He has exhibited us last of all Men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed and roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the drags of all things, even until now. Why would a person live that way? Christ's kingdom is upside down from the kingdom of this world. How many times we say, I will not stay in this job because of the way I'm being treated. I am not being appreciated. I am not being valued. Or we say the same thing even about our marriages. So I don't have to put up with this. God did not make me to be a doormat. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers. Jesus said, I am among you as he that serveth. We have the idea that a man called to the ministry is called to be a different kind of being than other men. According to Jesus Christ, he is called to be a doormat of other men, their spiritual leader, but never their superior. I know how to be abased, says Paul. This is Paul's idea of service. I will spend myself to the last ebb for you. And, may, and you may give me praise or give me blame. It will make no difference. So long as there is a human being who does not know Jesus Christ, I am his debtor to serve him until he does. The mainspring of Paul's service is not love for men, but love for Jesus Christ. If we are devoted to the cause of humanity, we shall soon be crushed and brokenhearted, for we shall often meet with more ingratitude from men than we would from a dog. But if our motive is love to God, no ingratitude can hinder us from serving our fellow men. Chambers also says the real test of the saint is not preaching the gospel, but washing disciples' feet. That is, doing the thing that do not count in the, in the actual estimate of men, but count everything in the estimate of God. Who wants to be last? Nobody wants to be in last place. But sometimes it is where God puts us and where he wants us to stay. He does not want us to change. He does not want us to move. He does not want us to promote ourselves, exalt ourselves, or to make sure that we are being seen. As being little, I knew all through school what it was to be last. Man, those, I hated those P.E. times when, when it wasn't the coaches that, that picked the teams. The coaches would pick two athletic boys and say, pick the teams. Well, I knew what would happen. Might as well move to the back because I'm going to be last. And I was always chosen last. And I wasn't thinking of Jesus' words, the last shall be first. I hated it. In fact, I remember... One time when I stopped, when I, was not, when I was not chosen last, when I was playing softball with my Mormon friends. And the first game we played, sure enough, I and my best friend, we were both the same size, we were chosen last. He was on one team, I was on the other. And I think God just decided that the influence of the Mormons was going to come to an end that day because God gave me the ability to hit a softball that day. I had never been able to hit a softball, and the softball was a little lighter, to be fair. And when I came up to bat, I don't know what happened, but I became Mighty Mouse. And, and I, I hit that ball completely out of the field, across the street, and into the people's yards. It was just getting smaller and smaller as it flew away, and I'm just standing there going, <laughs> That, how did that happen? And I ran the bases, and every time I came up, I crushed it right over into the across the street. I'm just going, this has never happened in my life. So we played one game, and then, I don't know, maybe we were playing to 10 runs or something, but they, they said, it's time for another game. Choose teams again. And I was no longer last. I got to feel what it was like to be chosen. And some kid says, I want that guy. He can hit the ball. Well, I was proud as a peacock on the way home, man. I was just, I, I was just gloating. And, I, and so my best friend, my Mormon friend, I'm going, did you see what happened? Did you see how I hit the ball? Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> and I discovered a flaw in my friend, envy. And I was never invited to play baseball again with them. I was never invited to the Mormon church again. So I believe that God gave me the ability to hit a softball so that I would not be a Mormon today. (laughs) But it's so sweet to be recognized, to be praised, to be elevated, to be seen. And it's not fun when we're not seen. Nobody sees us. God looks for the least. So should we. It takes a special kind of heart to be able to see the people that no one else sees. And if you've never been least, if you've never been last, I doubt that you will have the ability to see the ones that God sees. My first summer as a camp counselor, I couldn't believe how popular I was. I had never been popular. But I was popular with the kids that no one else saw. And they somehow knew there was something in me that they could connect with. And for the first time in my life, I can say thank you from the heart. Thank you, God, for how you made me. I see now what it was for. I have a friend who's been a diabetic since he was a young child. And he has suffered a lot with his diabetes. He and I are the same age. And um, he now pastors a church that is quite large. And the church is full of recovering drug addicts and alcoholics. And he has done nothing to that, those people to the church. They have not had programs to reach out to, drug al- to, to alcoholics and drug addicts. But the church is full of broken, suffering people. And he told me that there's been several times people have walked up to him and said, how long have you been an alcoholic? How long have you been a drug addict? And he goes, I've never been an alcoholic. I've never been a drug addict. What are you talking about? But what they sense is suffering and pain. And it's because of the diabetes. He has lived his life with limitations that the rest of us have never had to experience. But God, in doing that, has given him a ministry that other people will never have. God's kingdom is upside down from ours. He makes us weak so that it is Christ's strength that is seen. And it's Christ who is exalted. John the Baptist says, I must decrease that he might increase. But it's when we are in the small places and are are overlooked and know that God sees us that we begin to have the heart and eyes of God to see those that other people never see, just as God does. So what does that mean? How does that translate? The least are who God looks for. The last are the ones that God sees. Jesus also says, He exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. So how does this apply, translate, in our relationships with each other, how we live our lives? You can probably come up with a lot of applications here, but I just was thinking, well, if I were a single man looking for a wife with the eyes of God, I should not be naturally drawn to those women who are seeking to present themselves and make themselves seen. God looks for those who are not being seen. And a single man, it occurs to me, ought to look for the women who are not trying to get attention. For the one who is quietly serving and seeking the Lord. Those are the ones God sees. We ought to see the same if we were single men. For a single woman, the same thing. She ought to look for the man who exalts Christ and not himself. The man who talks easily about Jesus and his relationship with him. The man who recognizes his desperate need for Jesus and whose heart is inclined toward him because we know that it is the humble, the broken, the contrite, the poor in spirit that God takes notice of. And that's who a single woman should take notice of. Not the one who is seeking to exalt himself, but the one who simply wants to serve Christ. For employers, we ought to look for the ones for that person, that man who isn't blowing his horn or striving to be noticed by the boss, the one who is all words but no content, or as we like to say in Texas, all hat but no cattle. Look for the man who is just quietly doing his job, the man of integrity and character, who serves an audience of one, God. God and is not just trying to get the notice and attention of the boss. Employees should find a job that honors integrity and humility and that doesn't overpromise and then under-deliver. Parents, when we see selflessness, humility, kindness, generosity, thoughtfulness, and forgiveness on display in our children, these are all things that are antithetical to the world. Because the world is about the boastful pride of life. When we see selflessness, humility, we should praise it. Behind all self-advancement is distrust in God. Isn't it? If I feel that I have to promote myself and advance myself, I am saying I can't trust God to elevate me, to take care of me, to promote me, I need to do it myself. We will be looked over by people, never by God. We can rest in Him and never concern ourselves with personal advancement or recognition. God sees and knows all, He exalts the humble. He humbles the proud, and we can trust that he is generous and good. Generous and good. What is the source of strife among you, James says? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war on your members? You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Selfish ambition, John is talking about. I don't know if you, how many of you know the name, um, Francis Schaeffer. Quite the man. Internationally recognized for his intellect. A prophet of his day. So perceptive, insightful into culture and what was going on. Amazing man. What you may not know is that he was absolutely abhorrent to doing anything to promote himself or his ministry. He fought against it. When he and his wife went to Switzerland and purchased a, a, a Swiss chalet, and they named it Brie, their only purpose was to reach purposeless young people who were trekking across Europe aimlessly. And he just wanted to have some impact one at a time on these aimless, purposeless young people. So as they would trek by, he would invite them into his home and serve them a meal, give them a warm bed, and tell them about Jesus, one on one. And as time went on, he began teaching, um, and he would have a Bible study, or he'd have just just a talk, an open talk about any topic they wanted to talk about. And they were so rich that people were saying, you need to write a book. And he goes, I'm not writing a book. You know, the, people need to know, you know, what, no, I'm, I'm, we are here to reach the individual. We are not here to, to become big. And he fought against it. And so unknown to him, people were secretly putting cassette recorders in plants in the room and secretly taping him against his wishes and then distributing those cassette tapes out. And that's how he became known. So in his book, an excerpt from his, one of his books called Little People, which I just started reading a couple weeks ago. You think with the title I would have read it years ago. But I, <laughs> but I so appreciated just an excerpt here from the first chapter of his book, Little People. And it's just a collection of sermons. Jesus commands Christians to seek consciously the lowest room. All of us pastors, teachers, professional religious workers, and non-professional included are tempted to say, I will take the larger place because it will give me more influence for Jesus Christ. Bigger the ministry, the more the influence. How many times have you heard that? Schaefer hated it. Both individual Christians and Christian organizations fall prey to the temptation of rationalizing this way as we build bigger and bigger empires. But according to Scripture, this is backwards. We should consciously take the lowest place unless the Lord himself extrudes us into a greater one. The word extrude is important here. To be extruded is to be forced out under pressure into a desired shape. Picture a huge press jamming jamming soft metal at high pressure through a die so that the metal comes out a certain shape. This is the way of the Christian. He should choose the lowest place until God extrudes him into a position of more responsibility and authority. In other words, it's not what he's choosing, it's what God is choosing. Let me suggest two reasons why we ought not to grasp the larger place. First, we should seek the lowest place because there it is easier to be quiet before the face of the Lord. I did not say easy. In no place, no matter how small or humble, is it easy to be quiet before God. But it is certainly easier in some places than in others, and the little places where I can be more easily close to God should be my preference. I am not saying that it is impossible to be quiet before God in a greater place, but God must be allowed to choose when a Christian is ready to be extruded into such a place. For only he knows when a person will be able to, re- to have some quietness before him in the midst of increased pressure and responsibility. Quietness and peace before God are more important than any influence a, p- a position may seem to give. For we must stay in step with God to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? Quietness and peace before God are more important than any influence a position may seem to give. For we must stay in step with God to have the power of the Holy Spirit. I love it. Then he goes on to say, The second reason why we should not seek the larger place is that if we deliberately and egotistically lay hold on leadership, wanting the drums to beat and the trumpets to blow, then we are not qualified for Christian leadership. Why? Because we have forgotten that we are brothers and sisters in Christ with other Christians. I have said on occasion that this is the only good kind of fighter for Christ, the man who does not like to fight. The belligerent man is never the one to be belligerent for Jesus. And it is exactly the same with leadership. The Christian leader should be a quiet man of God who is extruded by God's grace into some place of leadership. One of the loveliest incidents in the early church occurred when Barnabas concluded that Paul was the man of the hour and then had to seek him out because Paul had gone back to Tarsus, his own little place. Paul was not up there nominating himself. He was back in Tarsus, even out of communication as far as we can tell. When Paul called himself the chief of sinners, not meant to be an apostle, he was not speaking just for outward form's sake. From what he said elsewhere and from his actions, we can see that what was, what was Paul's mentality. Paul, the man of leadership for the whole Gentile world, was perfectly willing to be in Tarsus until God said to him, this is the moment. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's, sake, in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. One thing, only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under his lordship and the power In the whole of life, may by God's grace change the flow of our generation. And change the flow of our generation? Francis Schaeffer did. And he never sought the high place. When I was in seminary, I was telling um, some of our summer staff this just um, Friday night. Francis Schaeffer in, those, in the 1980s, was making his last tour of the United States before he died. He was eaten up with cancer. He could barely travel, barely stand up, and yet he was making a, tr- a circuit around the United States giving a series of lectures. I heard about it, and I was able to go and hear him in person when I was in Dallas. Powerful messages. See this little man, cancer, skin cancer all over him, Standing at a podium, just shaking because he's weak and because he's so passionate. And what he's talking about is the sanctity of life. This was before there were any crisis pregnancy care centers. None. And this man is standing there who wants nothing to promote himself. Who has not tried to have a worldwide ministry. Who has practiced what he's preached. God has extruded him out. And not because he sought it or promoted himself. And this little man is standing up there just shaking in passion, and he's looking at this audience of six, seven, eight hundred 800 young professional adults, yuppies, 30 and 40 years old. And he's saying, for God's sake and for your sake, do something about abortion because this generation that I'm looking at will be the next generation to be killed. Where did that come from? says, because if we do not value the life of the unborn, when this baby boomer generation is hitting retirement and, and the country cannot sustain that many retired people, one retired person for every two workers, your life is not valued. For your sakes, do something. And after those lectures, there were scores of people standing up at two microphones that were in the room. And these young professional Christians going, what should we do? What should we do? And it was out of that lecture series, as I understand, that the Crisis Pregnancy Center movement got started. They said, this is what we can do. Help young women who are pregnant and don't know how they can move forward. This we can do. One man who never sought to promote himself, who was content with a small Chalet hidden in the Alps of the Swiss Swiss countryside talking to people one-on-one, and God uses him to to move a generation. This is what God's talking about. It's an upside-down kingdom. We do not have to make Christ's kingdom bigger. He is more than adequate to enlarge his kingdom. We don't have to make our own ministries bigger. God is more than adequate to do this. Live contentedly a consecrated life where God has placed you and there's no limit to what God can do. You've heard me quote Russell Kelfer before on this point. If God is using us, it is because we are the least likely candidates he has to succeed on our own. I love it. Or to paraphrase him, If he's using you, it's because he can't find anybody more unqualified. (laughs) And if he blesses what he does in spite of us, what right do we have to claim title to his victories? It's an upside-down kingdom. But I'd rather live in his upside-down kingdom than the kingdom of this world. He is looking simply for the heart that's inclined to him. And he never overlooks anybody. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And that backdrop, powerful stuff. He's a generous God. I never need to worry about what he's... I don't ever ask, oh, God, if I take that job, how am I going to supply for my family? If I ask that question, yes. Or, God, if I have lived this way, what's, how, how am I... It yeah, doesn't matter. He is a generous God. And the life that is surrendered to Him, placed in His hands, there will never be any regrets because God is no man's debtor. And I could never wrestle out of God's hands a better contract than what He is willing to give me generously without me even asking. He's that kind of God, that kind of king. They don't get it. And so Jesus, in verse 17, he tells him now for the third time at least that he's going to die. Now he gets a little more specific. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples. We're now the last week of Christ's life. He took them aside, and he said in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up again. That's the first time they'd heard crucifixion. And in the context here, what he's talking about, he says, I am living out before you what I'm saying. Yes, I'm king, and I am not going to exalt myself. Quite the opposite, I'm going to be crucified. How does that fit your thinking? And that doesn't break your paradigm of how the world's supposed to operate. The king, the king of kings and lord of lords, he's going to be crucified. And he's happy with it. This is what my father has for me. Wow. And on, on the, immediately on the heels of that, the one who is suffering... He's going to humble himself, and as Philippians 2 says, because he humbles himself so greatly, he will be exalted with a name above all other names. Immediately on the heels of this, here comes the sons of Zebedee with their mother, and she's bowing down before them, making a request. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you wish? She says, command that your king, in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Are you kidding me? Goodness gracious, have you not been hearing anything that he's he's been saying? Elevate them, put them on your right, put them on your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, which is a cup of suffering? And they said to him, we're able. Oh, my word. And he said to him, my cup you shall drink, you're going to suffer. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. In hearing this, the ten became indignant at the two brothers. Now, why were they indignant? Because they wanted those positions too. And they're going, and the only reason they're upset is because they did it first. They would have been very happy to have had those positions for themselves. And Jesus called them to himself and said you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them it is not so among you but whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall become your slave so don't seek to sit on my left hand right hand but seek to serve me and to serve your brethren just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many just like me I still read this passage, and I still think about that time I I was talking to a Jehovah's witness, and I was saying, listen, just explain to me how this works. There's 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to be in heaven. Yep. And I said, okay, have they already been selected? Yep. So what happens if you're not one of the 144,000, but you're a Jehovah's Witness? Well, we get to live on the new earth. But you don't get to live in heaven. No, nope. so you get second place. Yep, second place. So what, what, why are you trying so hard? And then they came out with this. Because we could become good enough that we could bump one of the 144,000 out. Unbelievable. How is that the Spirit of Christ? Jehovah Witness. We are, our lives are witnesses of Jehovah. The one who became last. And we're trying to become first and bump out one of the 144,000 so that we can live in heaven and all the other second-class Jehovah's Witnesses get to live on earth. Wow. This last part here seems to not be connected, but I believe that God has inspired Matthew to include the healing of these two blind men as just a further illustration that the last become first. First, But I'm going to read here, rather than from from Matthew, this this story, this healing is, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew says two men were healed. Mark and Luke say one man was healed. That's not a problem. It's just Mark and Luke are focused on one of the two men. And that one man's name was Bartimaeus. But Bartimaeus had a second guy with him, but Mark and Luke choose to focus on Bartimaeus. So it's it's Mark that tells us his name. But I want to look at how Luke lays this out. So just quickly, we're about to wrap it up. Luke 18, verse 35. And it came about that as he was approaching Jericho, a certain blind man was sitting by the road begging. So we're told three things about this man he's blind, he's sitting, and he's begging, okay? Now, hearing a multitude going by, he began to inquire what this, was, what this might be. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, how did he know that it was the son of David? That means king, Jesus, king. The son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. Nobody told him who that was. They said Jesus of Nazareth. They never never properly described Jesus. So this man, this blind man sitting by the road begging, knows more about who Jesus is, appreciates more who Jesus is than the crowd that's going with him. Wonder how that happened. And then he starts crying out insistently, have mercy on me. Look at this. This is what Matthew doesn't say. Verse 39. Those who led the way. Matthew says a great multitude followed Jesus. But Luke throws in this little incident. It's not everybody was following. Some people were in front. That's interesting. as I, I like to picture Jesus going down a road and he's got all these masses of people just streaming behind him. But it wasn't that way. Yes, there were masses of people behind him, but there were some people who positioned themselves in front of Jesus. And they probably kept a bit of an eye on him. They didn't want to get too far from him. But as they walked down the road, Jesus is right behind them. And so they're leading the way. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. The man is in such last place, he cannot follow Christ. And those who are in first place are saying, shut your mouth. Man, the contrast here is stark. There's nothing this man can do to follow Jesus. And those that are with him are saying, just shut your mouth. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, and he began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. The people were not praising God until the least is transformed. And you catch what happens here? He went from a blind, sitting beggar to a seeing, following, glorifying man. Total transformation. And all he did was say, have mercy upon me. Beautiful picture of salvation and how Jesus is looking for the least among us. The man didn't ask to be made a king. He, didn't ask, he, just, he just receives his sight and he goes, I'm a follower of Jesus and he glorifies God. And everyone else begins praising God, which they apparently were not doing before. God is a good God. He is a generous God. He overlooks no one. I know for every one of us, there are times in our life where we feel like we are just stuck and there's no hope of escape, that we will never advance. If anything, we just see that we're going downhill and not uphill. We face health issues. We face financial issues. We face marital problems, whatever it is. And we just feel like, God, do you even see? Yes, he especially sees. He especially sees those who are broken and contrite of heart. They are never missed. They are never overlooked. And God says it may not happen during this lifetime, but we can take it to the bank. The least shall be first that God is going to be more generous, so much so that we cannot begin to think or ask what God will do, the exceeding weight of glory that he has for us. I am so thankful I do not have to live my life exalting and promoting myself or a ministry. It's God's business that I can live in the small place as a small man as Francis Schaeffer was saying, a consecrated life, and know that the most important thing is to have a quiet heart before God and leave the consequences to him. And when he extrudes us out into the higher place, we move because God is moving us. And otherwise, we say, thank you, God, that you see when others don't. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that your ways are not as the world's are. Always looking for the one that is boastful and proud and promoting himself, achieving and striving, conquering. And you are looking for those who cannot help themselves, who are weak, broken, contrite of heart. And I thank you that you will make all things right. Thank you, God, that your promise is to exalt the humble and that we don't have to negotiate a contract with you for what our reward will be, that we can live without even thought to it, to know that as our lives are yielded to you, consecrated to you for your purposes, that you will do more than we could ever ask or think. Thank you, O God, for your loving kindness Thank you, God, for your generous heart toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.